Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast series on New Books Network. My name is Hui Ying, and I'm here as one of the hosts on the channel. Today, it is our greatest pleasure to welcome Robert, the author of the newest book, uh, Rats, Cats, Rogues, and Heroes, Glimpses of China's Hidden Past. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, before we delve into the book, would you like to share a few words about yourself, your background, or anything you would like to share with our audience here? Okay, sure. Um, first, let me say I grew up in a working class family in New Orleans, Louisiana. And even as a child, I can remember uh, being very interested in history. I like to listen to my uh, father, who was a seaman all of his life, and my uh maternal grandfather, who was a cabinet maker in New Orleans, and uh, listened to them with their stories. And they often told me stories about uh, history. My father, of course, uh, being a seaman, went uh, around the world. So I learned a lot from him about stories about the the world and world history. For my grandfather, who grew up in New Orleans also, he uh, often told me stories about Louisiana and New Orleans, and uh, particularly I remember stories about the pirate Jean Lafitte, who was very famous in the New Orleans area. Uh, they were both very good storytellers, and I really think I got my interest in history from uh, listening to them tell me stories, especially history of the common people and uh, everyday life. Uh, but I also remember that... Uh, by and large, the stories that they told me were very different from the stories that I, and the things that I would start reading when I went to school. Now, I got my bachelor's degree and my master's degree in history at the University of New Orleans, and then my PhD in Chinese history from the University of Hawaii in 1988. Along the way, back in the 1970s, I went to Taiwan where I studied Chinese And in the 1980s, I took my first trip to mainland China, uh, where I went to Beijing as a student at the uh, People's University, Renmin大学. And uh, I worked with uh, professors Wei Qingyuan and uh, Qin Baoqi at uh, at Renmin大学. And um, at that time, I was doing uh, research for my dissertation in the uh, Qing archives, the number one archives. I got my doctorate, as I said, in uh, 1988, and after that, I took my first teaching job at Western Kentucky University, where I taught for about 20 years. And then in, I think it was 2007, I went to uh, the University of Macau, and then, then uh, after that, I had a research position at Guangzhou University, and I retired in 2019. Uh, since that time, I've been I had several stints as a uh, visiting scholar at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton. And uh, my wife and I live in the Princeton area now. 
thank you so much for sharing that. I I'm so in, intrigued when you start to talk about the stories your father and grandfather was telling about the seamen and their explorations. Um, so those are kind of um, stories from um, from your childhood. And how did you come to write this book on the history of everyday life for the common people in 16th to 20th century China? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, uh, I seem to always have been interested in the history of everyday life or what uh, historians commonly now call history from the bottom up. As a historian, I believe that is really important to understand things, society, that we uh, look at it not only from the perspective of the uh, people at the top, uh, but also from the perspective of the little guys at the bottom level of society, the, both men and women at the lower ends of uh, social ladder. Previously, most of my research and publications have dealt with uh, this kind of history, that is history from the bottom up. And in particular, I've written several books and articles about pirates and bandits and secret societies. So my new book is really an offshoot or an extension of the earlier studies. It's about things that I didn't say in my earlier books and articles. The new book, Rats, Cats, Rogues, and Heroes, I've tried to combine both social history and cultural history. And here by cultural history, I'm talking particularly about popular or folk culture. And I'm interested, again, in looking at China's downtrodden or what uh, I describe as the underside of Chinese history. In this book, I wanted to talk more about those peoples and the events usually left out in the more conventional or standard histories of China. And thus the title, or the subtitle, I should say, is uh, Glimpses of China's Hidden Past, or what Clifford Gertz once said, This is looking at the past from the native's point of view. That is the view of ordinary people. What I'm interested in in particular is is popular consciousness as expressed in the rituals, sociocultural conventions, and complex symbolism of everyday life. And we can say in a sense that this new book is a kind of um, micro-history approach. And in writing the book, uh, my purpose was not to replace the standard histories, but rather to offer an alternative way to look at China's past. That is to look at China's past through the perspective of the people themselves. When we look at history from the natives' point of view, we can see a different kind of history. What I discovered in doing field work is that ordinary people often didn't see the past in the same way as we historians see the past. Thank you so much. And um, let me follow up on one particular point you just mentioned. So you're talking about this new book, newest book, is a history that from the view or uh, the perspective of the ordinary people. And um, and you're talk, talking about you're doing field work. So could you elaborate more what kind of sources you were using to reconstruct this particular perspective? And how did you approach those sources? And um, what kinds of challenges have you encountered? Sure. Okay, that's a good question. Um, 
to study the history about the ordinary people um, and to study history from the natives' point of view, it's really not very easy. Uh, in China, just like every, everywhere else in the world, most ordinary people or common people have really left us virtually nothing that they've written in their own hands. So to get at this kind of history requires a lot of using different, new, different kinds of uh, sources, including both conventional sources and unconventional sources, and as well as using innovative methodologies and I would say lots of imagination. In other words, to basically think outside the box. Uh, so in writing this book, I use not only methodologies of history, but also anthropology, literature, and uh, particularly folk studies. I got my clues not only then from the archives and gazetteers, but also from doing field work. So field work was really important in doing this research for this book. In fact, I can say the book grew out of my discontent with the commonly used sources I found in libraries and archives. Those sources rarely answered all the questions I had about everyday lives of ordinary people. How did they view their own lives and their own history? What about their personal experiences? How did they identify themselves and their communities? And also, what did they believe in? And then how did they act upon those beliefs? These are some of the kinds of questions I was interested in exploring in this new book. And these are the kinds of questions that couldn't be answered uh, from the conventional or standard kinds of historical sources, such as the archives and gazetteers. So my major concern is how to give voice to the voiceless. And to do this, we had to look at not only the conventional written sources, the archives, the gazetteers, and so on, but unconventional, less conventional sources uh, by looking at new types of textual, visual, and oral evidence. So over the past 30 years, I visited and revisited numerous uh, archives and libraries around uh, China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, other places. But also I conducted extensive field work in many of these out-of-the-way villages and towns in South China. The field work, in fact, was especially important for this book. It allowed me to answer many of the questions that I couldn't find answers to in the conventional archival and textual sources. So for me, field work was an important supplement to the more standard research that we usually do as historians in libraries and archives. Now, when I do field work as a historian, I'm not an anthropologist by training, but I'm a historian by training. And when I do field work, I look at two things, or I have two aspects uh, in doing the field work. First is that I collect lots of uh, vernacular written sources from villages and markets, uh, such as family records, genealogies. I also spent a lot of time with uh, my students and my wife, she goes with me on trips, uh, to transcribe stone inscriptions, uh, as well as uh, copying and buying in the markets if I, whenever I can, the uh, uh, handbooks, local village handbooks on geomancy, on talismans, uh, or uh, temple liturgical texts. 
So often the information in these kinds of sources can't be found in archival sources that are written by officials and other, uh, and other uh, literati. Uh, besides collecting written sources in the villages and towns, I also like to collect oral histories from interviews with villages and ordinary people. And in particular, I like to collect the stories or the folklore that they can tell me. These stories are important for understanding popular mentality. Uh, they can tell us a lot, especially as expressed in the own words of these people themselves, about how they see themselves, they see their communities, and then their own past. So the fieldwork is important, I think, also because it can reveal the unexpected and reveal things that are not found in any other sources. Take just one example from my book. In the uh, first interlude, I discuss a local deity named Zushi, who I discovered quite by accident. Zushi is a purported sister of uh, Zhang Changgong, or Kaksinger as he is known in the West, who was a rebel pirate hero who lived during the time of the Ming-Qing transition. Zushi is a local sea goddess that has only one small temple in an isolated village along the Guangdong coast, a couple of hundred miles maybe away from uh, present-day Hong Kong. The, what I'm saying here then about the fieldwork, that was really important because if I hadn't done fieldwork and found this uh, temple by accident, we wouldn't know anything about the Zushi because there's really nothing written about her in and the standard kinds of uh, works that we as historians use. So the field work is really important to discovering her. Now you're asking also maybe about challenges. Oh, yeah, of course, there's lots of challenges in doing field work. Uh, I think one of the uh, one kind of challenge is relates to the reliability of the sources as a historian. Uh, but I would also say that the reliability is uh, a problem not only for doing field work uh, as a source, but also any kind of historical source, like archives or uh, gazetteers. Re the reliability depends on the types of questions we ask of our sources. So in doing field work, to gather information on folk culture, I was less interested in gathering what we would call facts, but rather in gathering information about how people view themselves and view their own history. Uh, this is what uh, Clifford Gertz called the native's point of view. I guess personally, my biggest uh, challenge was actually just getting out to the field to do the research. Uh, many of the places that, we, uh, that I and my students would go to were uh, in the countryside. Uh, in very remote areas, sometimes in the mountains. Uh, for example, most of the research I did was in the, on the Lejo Peninsula and in uh, the mountainous area in northwestern uh, Guangdong on the border with Hunan, uh, the area where the Yao minority live, and an area where there is a large concentration of Hakka. Uh, it literally took eight or nine hours by bus to get there from either Macau area or from Guangzhou, where I was living at the time. So it was really a lot of trouble getting out there in a sense. Luckily for me, though, I had some very good students 
who were also very enthusiastic about doing this uh, field work and research with me. And we had, generally speaking, a very good time just going out and doing the work and spending a few days in the countryside, getting them out of the classroom as well. I think one um, one of the biggest um, different impressions that I got from reading your newest book is that um, it represents or it pre- no, sorry it presents such a nicely um, woven together narrative, but with so many different kind of sources and also so many stories and some from 16th century, 15th century, or some from like present day, <laughs> 2000. And all of those um, stories, either written account or oral records, um, miraculously, uh, not miraculously, but through your um, masterful analysis, they all kind of point to a certain theme or they indeed review, as you said, the native's perspective, the native voice. So while I was reading um, chapter by chapter, um, it's all those different kind of people, either the boat woman, the haka or the yao, um, they came out. And I really enjoyed not just the eight chapters, but as you were talking about the interludes and also the postludes, they all contain so many stories. (laughs) And thank you for sharing with us the three decades of um, fieldwork and also archival work to make this happen. So as um, uh, this book contains so many chapters and interesting information and stories. We would not be able to go through all of them here today in our podcast, but we will focus on um, three chapters, uh, one uh, on rats and cats, one on the Yao ethnic minority, and the last on the boat woman um, chapter. So um, to start, kind of following what you just mentioned about the sources and um, kind of collecting them through fieldwork and archival documents, um, chapter three, um, I feel, is one of um, the great one of the greatest display of what you just mentioned, kind of weaving together different kinds of sources, including c- criminal case records, local gazetteer popular poetry, and also examination of the geomancy, the feng shui. So um, to be specific, uh, what is the story behind this metaphorical phrase, rats and cats? And how did this phrase become uh, your chosen book title? Okay, yeah. Um, Well, I guess I could start off by saying one of the biggest influences in writing this book was... uh, Robert Daunton's seminal book called The Great Cat Massacre, which was first published in, I think, 1985. Uh, So the title of my book and much of my approach, especially in this chapter three that you mentioned, uh, comes from Robert Daunton. And as for the title of my book, Rats, Cats, Rogues, and Heroes, I chose this title because they represent key elements in what I wanted to explore in my book. They are the key elements for my interpretation of history from the natives' point of view. So besides rats and cats, I also discuss other kinds of animals 
in this book, such as chickens and dogs and tigers. Uh, in particular, what I'm interested in was the symbolic meanings of rats, cats, and other animals. As symbols, they provide social and cultural meanings that, pe- that help people to make sense of their world in terms that they can understand. In general, people perceive and create reality through symbols that are constructed uh, or construed, maybe you could say, in many complex and very ambiguous ways. Now, the rogues and the heroes, of course, are the main characters in my book. They are also the so-called ordinary people. Uh, in the book that I talk about. So they are the individuals who occupy the lower end of the social ladder. They are what I discuss in one of the chapters, the denizens of the underworld of rivers and lakes, uh, in Chinese, the Jianghu. They consist of the knights errant in uh, vernacular novels, such as Water Margin, but also the real-life bandits, pirates, con men, wizards, sorcerers, beggars, and prostitutes. In my book, many of these rogues come heroes are represented by such people as uh, Righteous Young, who was a pirate during the Ming-Qing transition in the Gulf of Tonkin, or Broken Shoes Chen IV, a man with a very strange name, who uh, was one of the leaders, important leaders of the uh, the uh, Triad Rebellion, the Hakka Triad Rebellion in 1802, and uh, the Yao rebel leader by the name of, of uh, Golden Dragon Zhao. So these are some of the kinds of uh, rogues and heroes that I talk about in the book. Now, more specifically in Chapter 3, the rats, cats, and bandits in the Canton Delta, Here I am dealing with the uh, seemingly inexplicable connections between rats, cats, geomancy or feng shui, and bandits. Again, in this chapter, as you mentioned, I also combine archival sources with folklore and fieldwork. The archives were important for understanding the social and political aspects, while the folklore and fieldwork are essential for my understanding of local popular culture or the folk culture of the area. Uh, The first two sections of that chapter deal with the area itself and the people who live in the area and the uh, discussion of the bandits that were living in the area. Uh, And uh, this comes mostly from the archival documents. The third section, I would say for me, and I hope for readers, will find the most interesting section. Uh, I discuss the symbolic meanings of rats and cats, and then the connections with geomancy or feng shui. So in the third section, is based largely on folklore and fieldwork. Briefly, uh, as it turns out, banditry was a really big problem even in the vicinity of the provincial capital of Guangzhou in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. One group of particularly pesky rogues was led by a bandit by the name of Liang Yashang, who had his headquarters on a mound that locals call Rat Hill. 
And of course, this name derives from China's traditional folklore uh, that associated rats with bandits. I should also mention that Rat Hill is located about 20 miles southeast of Canton or Guangzhou, uh, right in the heart or the core area of the Canton Delta. It's an area where we wouldn't expect to find large bandit gangs, but there they were. In any case, the provincial government initiated several measures, such as uh, increasing the armed forces in the area around Rat Hill, and they also promulgated a new harsh law that dealt specifically with uh, Canton bandits, Uh, but to little avail. Finally, and maybe in an act of desperation, officials cast an iron cat and placed it on a hill that was appropriately called Cat Hill that was right next to Rat Hill. The local villagers that I interviewed in 2002 and 2010 uh, told me that the uh, iron cat was meant to symbolically chase away or kill the bandits on Rat Hill. The iron cat was also related to beliefs in feng shui. I was told that Rat Hill was located at the most optimal spot according to feng shui theory. That is, at the spot that is called the dragon's lair. Villagers told me that the bandits were able to last so long, and some of them told me for hundreds of years, because they controlled the quote-unquote good feng shui on Rat Hill. The placement then of the iron cat on an adjacent cat hill was meant to block the vital forces, the chi, that protected the bandits on Rat Hill. So in other words, this was a conventional feng shui attack that officials often used against their enemies, whether they were bandits or rebels. Interestingly, two of my elderly informants that I interviewed in 2002 remembered the iron cat from when they were children. They said that the iron cat was hollow and that people like to put coins inside for good luck. But then, quite ironically, in 1930s, they said that outside bandits entered the area and stole the cat with all the money inside. Well, I think this uh, curious episode of rats, cats, geomancy, and bandits is important for what it can tell us about how villagers, literati, and officials conceptualize their mental and symbolic worlds, and then how they acted upon those beliefs. Thank you for sharing more about uh, rats and cats, and also the particular rat hill and the iron cat. I have been wondering whether uh, the iron cat still exists or whether the local government or the local society wanted to erect a new <laughs> iron cat statue, <laughs> just make it a tourist tourist attraction. Unfortunately, the iron cat has been lost, though. I don't know. Yeah. But glad it... Um, but only remembered. Remembered and existed in Chapter 3. <laughs> um well, next, I want to move on, kind of jump over the interesting chapters about uh, Society of Heaven and Earth, the Tian Di Hui, and move on to Chapter 6, um, this um, ethnic minority of the Yao people. Um, I found this chapter um, interesting and also unique in a sense that it... Um, 
kind of intervenes the scholarship on frontier studies and ethnic studies, um, but f- providing a, through a different perspective of, let's say, folk profess- perspective or um, popular view, popular perspective. So um, could you share with us here um, briefly, how did an origin myth, the Panhu myth, become the key to the understanding of the Yao ethnic identity, uh, the Yao frontier, and also the Yao rebellion of 1832? Yes, that's good. Um, Let me start with them. Again, the Yao are an ethnic minority and uh, a very diverse group. Uh, They speak many different languages uh, that are often mutually unintelligible from one group to the next. They spread across a really large area of South China and into Southeast Asia. And in 1832, the Yao that were living in the mountainous borderlands of Guangdong, Hunan, and Guangxi revolted against the Qing state. In this chapter, chapter 6, I argue that the Pan-Hu origin myth is the key to our understanding of Yao identity, the Yao frontier, and the rebellion in 1832. So what about this uh, myth? And uh, the Pan-Hu story was first recorded in Chinese accounts during the ancient Han Dynasty. But even before that time, uh, there would have been in circulation oral accounts of the Panhu story among the various indigenous groups that were living in southern China. So the the myth in brief goes something like this. In ancient times, a tribe of barbarians invaded China during the reign of an emperor they called Ping, the emperor proclaimed that whoever could kill the barbarian King Gao would be rewarded with a kingdom, some gold, and the hand of his daughter in marriage. Uh, Unfortunately, none of his soldiers and none of his subjects were able to kill King Gao, except for Emperor Ping's faithful dog, who was named Panhu. He showed up soon afterwards in the palace with the head of of King Gao, Emperor Ping, although he hesitated, was obliged nonetheless to reward Panhu with a kingdom, gold, and his daughter's hand in marriage. Panhu became King Pan, or Pan Wang, and he and the emperor's daughter left to live in the southern mountains, where they gave birth to six males and six female offspring. These then became the start, you could say, of the Yao people. Now, the story of Panhu is one of the best-known features of Yao culture, and it's a unifying feature of Yao culture. It plays a key role in creating the Yao identity. The Yao, even to today, trace their origins to this uh, mythical dog called Panhu, In fact, we can say Yao identity became largely based on claims of descent from Panhu and a core of uh, common ritual practices associated with Panhu and the Panhu cult. As for the Yao frontier, it too is closely related to the Panhu story, and in particular the so-called Yao charters. 
Beginning in the Ming Dynasty, the Yao began to produce several charters, which they claimed to be authentic documents that dated back to at least the Tang Dynasty. In reality, these charters are fake, but the Yao nonetheless still consider them to be real documents. The charters retell the Panhu story, as well as specify a number of rights accorded to the Yao people during the time of Emperor Ping. Most importantly, the charters say that Emperor Ping and later Chinese rulers granted land in the southern mountains in perpetuity to the Yao, and also that the Yao could live freely in the mountains and were exempt from paying taxes in China. These charters, then, are statements of Yao identity and rights. Also, as part of the Panhu myth, there's a story of the betrayal by one of the Chinese rulers who drove the Yao out of their kingdom in southern mountains. Panhu promised to return one day with his celestial cavalry to destroy their enemies and to restore his people to a kind of promised land that the Yao call the Thousand Family Grotto, or Chen Jia Dong. It was supposed to be located in the southern mountains on the Hunan and Guangdong border. Uh, in 1832, a Yao master, Taoist master, you could say, uh, by the name of Gro- Golden Dragon Zhao, Zhao Jinlong, claimed to be a reincarnated Panhu and the savior of the Yao people. He said that he would lead the Yao to defeat the Qing and then reclaim their promised land. Now, this is the context in which Zhao Jinlong mobilized thousands of Yao and ignited the rebellion that lasted more than two years and involved tens of thousands of Yao insurgents, Chinese bandits and triads, imperial soldiers, and local mercenaries. The Panhu myth provided the Yao with a proud cultural heritage that stood in stark contrast to the negative histories propagated by the Ming and Qing state and China's cultural elites. By refashioning the Panhu myth within the context of their own culture, the Yao rejected and challenged the hegemonic narratives of the Han Chinese majority. In fact, the Panhu story allowed the Yao to rewrite history according to their own understandings of the past. Again, I would say, according to the natives' point of view. Thank you for sharing more about um, the particular Panhu myth and how it connects to the formation or construction of the Yao identity, the frontier, and also uh, the series of uprising um, culminating in 1832. Um, Moving from mountaintop to waterfront, um, chapter seven, have delves into the world of boat women. Um, you are writing on page 191 that in the early modern and modern periods of China, the waters along the southern coast of China were a highly feminized space, end of quote. So um, what made the waters along the South China littoral 
particularly feminine. Okay.、Uh, there are several reasons why I call the South China coast a highly feminized space. But first, let me just mention that、uh, in this chapter, my focus is on one group of boat people, the so-called Dan, or the uh, uh, used to be called derogatorily、uh, the Tonka,、uh, and I'm looking at the, the area, the coastal areas in Guangdong and Fujian. The、uh, most obvious reason why the coast was highly feminine. Was because about half of the Dan boating population was female, and that's because uh, in common, uh, it was common for whole families, the men, women, and children, to live aboard boats. And among the Dan, women actually played an important role in family and economic decision making. Dan boat women were also well known for their unconventional lifestyle and behavior, which, in a sense, we can say, turned Confucian orthodoxy on its head. Dan boat women didn't bind their feet, and they enjoyed a more liberal sexuality. Dan boat women also tended to be strong-willed and independent.、Uh, If I may, this is、uh, best exemplified in a 1946 boat woman's song, and the words go something like this: "Strong are we, the women, elder sister, younger sister, mother, grandmother. Strong are we, the women, working together in a concerted effort. In our hands here lies our whole strength and power." What is more. The women not only occupied large percentage of the boating population, but also women made a large percentage of the、uh, pirate population. In fact, Dan women played important roles among the pirate gangs. They not only helped in the everyday running of ships, but they also fought alongside the men pirates. And we also have cases of. Women who commanded pirate gangs and also even very large pirate fleets. The best example, of course, are the、uh, po- female pirates Zheng Yisao and Tsai Chen Ma in the early 19th century, and then later on Lai Choi San in the early 20th century. So taken together, boat women and female pirates represented one of the most radical departures from accepted notions of womanhood on land. They represented a kind of menacing other, who broke with established codes of female propriety, virtue, and passivity. Finally,、uh, the most important and formidable sea deities were females. And it's also very likely that along the Fujian and Guangdong coast, they were the female deities were also the most numerous.、And、these included a large number of, of female deities. The most、uh, famous, of course, is Mazu or Tianhou, the Empress of Heaven. But there are many, many others、uh, who are very little known to the outside their local communities. I mentioned already、uh, Zhu Xi, who was the purported sister of of Zhang Changgong. 
uh, on the Guangdong coast. But there's another uh, female deity that I deal with in the last chapter of the book, uh, someone I call the third old lady, uh, Sanpo. Uh, and then there are many others. Uh, female sea deities provided boat women with positive alternative models of womanhood, of strength, of defiance, in another word, otherwise uh, male-dominated society. Well, it's because of these kinds of reasons that I said the South China coast was a very highly feminized space. Yeah. Okay, so in addition to all those unconventional stories about cats, rats, um, bandits, pirates, sea deities. Is there anything else that you had not included in the book? Oh, of course. Um, there's really a lot more that I was unable to include in the book. Uh, again, as I said, I've, I've been doing field work and archival work and so on for the past 30 years. And so I've collected lots of different stories. Uh, there are stories like, for example, another pirate in the Lejo Peninsula called Wushar. Uh, there are also a number of other local deities uh, and religious festivals. In particular, I was with some of my students. I was doing field work in the, again on the Lejo Peninsula during the New Year's festivals of the Noor, the Noor dance rituals. And in the, uh, uh, let's see, the uh, uh, another area in Guangdong, uh, in western Guangdong, uh, another kind of interesting ritual in that area of around Maoming is uh, called the Nian Li, which was kind of a homecoming festival every year, usually around March. Uh, these we, uh, students and I have collected a lot of information and data, and uh, unfortunately, of course, we haven't, I have no room to include it in this book, and hopefully either I or some of my students will be writing about these things as well. So as you are hinting, <laughs> um, kind of as a way to wrap up today's podcast and also looking forward, would you like to share with us um, what you're working on right now or your next project? Okay, yeah. Well, again, this is all... Yeah. My next projects are, again, offshoots of uh, what I've been doing. And I can say also, in a sense, an offshoot of this, this latest book. Um, some of the topics that I'm working on now, one has to do an ongoing project, one that we started with students uh, oh, more than 10 years ago. Um, uh, and something that we we've been working on and collecting uh, information taken from or transcriptions from stone inscriptions that date back from the Ming and Qing dynasty. Now, most of the ones that we collected are the largest number that we've collected, and there's several hundreds of these uh, stone inscriptions that we've collected uh, come from the Lejo Peninsula, uh, and. Uh, uh, these we've been transcribing, and hopefully we will translate a number of them, and perhaps uh, do try or would like to try to do some kind of online uh, publication of this this project to make it available to a larger audience and for free. 
Another project, this would be a book-length study of the female pirate I mentioned, Zheng Yisao. She undoubtedly was one of the most remarkable women in Chinese history, and undoubtedly also one of the most successful pirates in world history. And I say remarkable because she started off, again, as a poor Dan or Tonka woman. She was a prostitute. And then she made her way up to become the wife of one of the major pirate leaders. And after he died, she, instead of stepping aside, took over the uh, large gang where she uh, commanded the so-called Red Banner fleet of pirates that consisted of over 20,000 pirates, men, women, both. Uh, Unfortunately, we know very little about her. And what little that is written about her is mostly based on legends and hearsay. So in my project, as in this book, Rats, Cats, Rogues, and Heroes, I would like to use a combination of both conventional and unconventional sources, the archives, gazetteers, folklore, and fieldwork to recount the life and times of uh, Zhang Yisao. Well, I feel we're dying for a book on this female pirate, and it sounds a perfect um, script for the next Netflix hit, (laughs) The Chinese Female Pirate. Um, Well, as time is coming to an end, unfortunately, but we're still very, very grateful to have Robert here with us and say a bit more about his newest book, Rats, Cats, Rogues, and Heroes, that came out, uh, just came out uh, with Roman and Littlefield in 2023. So if you're interested in uh, history of China from 16th century to 20th century or history of the bottom up or how to conduct an interdisciplinary study study, um, combining different kind of uh, sources to retell um, particular kinds of history or what I have to tell um, the history that not uh, conventionally written or recorded by official documents. Uh, This is the book to go to. Uh, Thank you again, Robert. Uh, for being with us and sharing your thoughts and uh, talk to you next time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.